Welcome to Canadian Defence Focus from CDR Radio, produced by Canadian Defence Review Magazine. This series of podcasts features interviews with leaders and experts in the defence industry, as well as reports and profiles on the very latest in defence technology. Hello, everybody. Welcome to CDR Radio. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm the senior staff writer for the magazine. I'd like to begin this episode by sharing that this episode of CDR Radio is sponsored by Davy Shipbuilding, proudly delivering world-class specialized ships to the Canadian Navy and Coast Guard under the National Shipbuilding Strategy. You can visit their website at www.davy.ca. So our guest today is Rear Admiral Brian Santarpia, who is the Commander of Maritime Forces Atlantic and Joint Task Force Atlantic, and he is also the Maritime Component Commander for the Royal Canadian Navy. Admiral Santarpia, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. It's an absolute pleasure to join you and your, and your listeners today. Thank you, sir. Uh, so how about we start by asking uh, the status of the Atlantic fleet today? Yeah, so the, the Atlantic fleet uh, is busy. Uh, it's deploying all over the place. And so, uh, you know, here in the Atlantic fleet, we have uh, seven frigates. Uh, we have the Asterix, the, uh, our interim um, AOR. Uh, we've, we've now uh, got two and we'll soon have the third of the Arctic offshore patrol ships. Uh, and as well, we've got uh, HMCS Windsor, uh, the, one of the four uh, Canadian submarines uh, uh, at sea today, um, force generating and, and working up for her next mission. Beautiful. It's a, it's a nice, diverse fleet for sure. And um, the scope of the fleet is global, uh, I guess, regardless of whether Atlantic or Pacific fleet. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we uh, were, as you say, uh, as the Maritime component Commander, uh, the team and I are responsible for command and controlling uh, ships all around the world that are deployed on operations. And so deployed around the world as of today, you know, there's uh, HMCS Kingston and Summerside to uh, Maritime uh, coastal defense vessels are deployed forward on Opry Assurance in uh, um, Europe in support of NATO operations. Uh, we've got uh, um, two ships that are just about to finish RIMPAC from, from MARPAC, uh, HMCS Vancouver and Winnipeg, which will then chop over and join off projection Indo-Asia Pacific and deploy to the Indo-Asia Pacific region. And as well, uh, Vancouver will do some op neon work uh, off the coast of, uh, of Korea in support of uh, UNSCR uh, and the security resolutions. And, uh, and then um, we regularly uh, you know, have ships go north for op Nanook. Uh, so that kicks off next week. Uh, we've got some ships that are going to go up to op Nanook using our new um, Arctic offshore patrol ships and, and MCDV. And then regularly, uh, not right now, but often, uh, we've got ships from both coasts down and off Carib. Uh, we send ships uh, to the to the Middle East on Op Artemis, and we send ships to uh, West Africa on Op Projection uh, West Africa. So uh, you know the the whole globe gets covered, and uh, uh, any given day we're on multiple operations around the world. That is awesome. Um, you mentioned uh, the two MCDVs um, that are in Europe right now. Um, is that deployment? Does it have any correlation to the war in Ukraine at all, or has the war in Ukraine kind of changed the way that the Canadian Navy deploys into that region? 
you know, it's, it's interesting. We, uh, you know, we, we try to look at all the places that we can deploy and add value around the world. And a lot of it has to do with, uh, with using Canada's Navy as, as an element of national power in order to succeed with our, with our unstated, but I think fairly self-evident, uh, national strategy. You know, I, I, I've argued before in, in, uh, multiple places that Canada has a grand national, you know, strategy that involves, uh, involves, um, supporting um, countries, like-minded countries in the, in the maintenance of the rules-based international order. And the way the Navy can add to that is to, is to prove that we're interoperable and to be out there so that if there is a crisis, uh, we're ready to operate anywhere in the world that we could to support that international order. And in fact, um, you know, we, we had recently decided to, uh, to bolster what we were going to do in the Indo-Asia-Pacific region by sending more ships there every year than we had before. So this year, we'll send three ships. Uh, we'll send the two ships from the West Coast that'll go here off RIMPAC, and then we're going to send a, a ship from the East Coast uh, in the new year, uh, in February. And so uh, we needed to figure out how to still contribute to NATO if we we're going to increase as much as we wanted to the Indo-Asia-Pacific. And one of the, the clever, novel ways to increase what we can do for NATO is to send these maritime coastal defense vessels into um, one of two groups that do mine countermeasure operations, uh, which is something that we we uh, we can do, and we we want to strengthen that capability, and we want to strengthen our ability to do that with partners. And so we had before the war in Ukraine had uh, had erupted, we had already decided that we were going to send every year we'll send two mine countermeasure vessels forward. Uh, they go with a, a specialized uh, sonar kit in one ship and a diving team that's um, that's uh, specialized in, in clearing mines uh, in the other ship. And then they work together along with uh, NATO allies to increase our ability to do that. So we had just kicked off that, that uh, planning effort when the war in Ukraine happened, uh, and we just continued on with it. And it really brings a great capability because as we can see, uh, with this war in Ukraine, um, the the fact that uh, that ships can't get out of of Ukraine with grain on board is very much um, because of the mine threat. It's probably the most significant threat uh, in, in the Black Sea, and NATO isn't at this point uh, clearing mines there, but it might want to in the future. And if it does, our ability to be able to contribute to that would be meaningful. So training with NATO in mine clearance operations in the Baltic, as Kingston and Somerset are doing today, absolutely is a great addition to uh, our ability to contribute to NATO. Yeah, that's really interesting to me because, um, I, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, but the MCDVs were originally um, acquired as mine clearance mine countermeasure ships. Um, but I think that task has kind of waned over the years, but it's, it sounds to me that that's being regenerated now. It's absolutely true. And you, you've absolutely captured that, that thought. We originally bought those ships and we thought that they would be doing mine clearance operations. And at the time, nearly 30 years ago, um, the way you cleared mines was the old traditional way. Um, often you would use uh, two vessels and you would use what's called sweep gear. And it's basically a mechanical clearing. You would, you, you drag wires behind two ships and they, they catch the mines and drag them along. And if they blow up, no problem, it's behind the ship and you're all okay. The, one of the challenges is the uh, navies that were really good at that didn't use metal ships. Uh, right. They use very specialized hulls uh, and that's expensive. And we, you know, as, as a nation, we chose not to buy those specialized hulls, so our ships weren't exactly the best ships in the world for that that mission. 
but the technology has changed so much over the years. And now the best way to find a mine is with remote vehicles. And so you don't have to go into the minefield with your ship. So the fact that your ship is now made of metal, it's not the same problem set it once was. You you send the remote vehicle in from your, your metallic ship without danger to the crew. They It finds the mine. It might even use that uh, remote vehicle to disable the mine. In our case, we use divers, uh, which is a great capability. It allows us to do things that other countries might not be able to because those divers are highly trained and experts in it. Uh, but all of a sudden, our platform has become a good option for mine clearance that it, that it wasn't before. Uh, and, and as we recognize this and recognize the relatively inexpensive way to add value back to NATO, uh, we are uh, working hard to, to make sure that we uh, regenerate this new capability. I think that's a it's a it's a great effort and uh, and I think very much needed because it sounds like um, uh, certainly in that area that that there's a potential to use them so uh, yeah better to have that uh, better to have that capability um, I, you know while we're on the topic of MCDVs I always find it amazing to think of them going across the Atlantic and into Western Africa. It's just, uh, um, I've had the opportunity to sail aboard MCDVs many times and um, I'll share with you that it, it wasn't the most comfortable ride for me being a little bit prone to seasickness. And, <laughs> but, uh, but I give, uh, I give all the credit to the crews that, that travel across the country, uh, across the ocean and, uh, and go do their job. It, but it just speaks to the, the versatility of the ships. Yeah, they really are great. They, um, I, I agree with it. it. You know, I was the XO of a of a patrol boat uh, many years ago, and uh, you know, one of the old minesweepers. And uh, in the open ocean, it wasn't always fun, for sure. They make pretty hardy sailors. If, if sailors can do a you know a, a posting in one of those ships, they turn out to be pretty tough. Uh, we can send them anywhere. We're we're careful with those ships. When we send them to West Africa, we tend to uh, send them south to avoid weather um, you know, before they cross. Uh, we, we we watch it very closely, uh, but I agree with you. They they produce great sailors. They're very flexible. We use them for all sorts of missions now, and they force generate sailors, next generation of sailors who can then go on and do the same task in a larger ship in a, in a frigate uh, at the next rank level. So it it, it helps us produce uh, the next generation of sailors, and it does deliver effect for Canada. That capacity building mission that they do in West Africa. Uh, has you know brings great credit to to Canada, and again, it's a, an ability to work with allies in a region that could use uh, greater security and stability, uh, and we can add that, um, and it, which just adds to our overall national strategy. Yeah, and I think that's a great segue over to talking about the AOPS because that particular mission, uh, going across, um, you know, doing op projection and going to Western Africa, is one that, in my mind, I think is very well suited towards to the AOPS. Um, obviously, the AOPS, you know, a part of their role is to go up into the Arctic, which is uh, what they're designed to do, but. Um, but they also have that offshore patrol um, role, which I think could be used for any of like the Op Carib missions um, uh, and what have you, because they're a large ship. And they've, in my opinion, I think they've, they'll they give the Navy a lot of flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, and you're you're spot on there that we are we've called them Arctic and offshore patrol ships. And the, the key is the conjunction. And uh, they right. do both of those missions. Uh, they're going to spend. 
you know, significant numbers of them will spend the entire navigable season in Canada's north because that's the primary reason that, that Canada uh, bought them. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's only four months of the year, and we'll have a half dozen of them. Uh, and we've already put in the schedule that Harry DeWolf will go across for op projection West Africa in 2024. Uh, so that's already in the in the planning schedule. Uh, we agree mm-hmm. that they have incredible flexibility. That AOPS is, um, you know, it's uh, it's going to deliver um, flexibility in a lot of neat ways, mostly uh, in size, which gets which allows you to bring on other stores that you wouldn't be able to bring on um, scientific research equipment, uh, training teams, um, your ability to do uh, humanitarian assistance. Uh, and then the ship shore connectors are really good. It's got a flight deck on like a, on like an MCDB. So we'll be able to embark a helicopter um, and be able to conduct operations with someone else's helicopter in order to get things to and from the shore. Uh, it's got great boats uh, and uh, and the capacity to launch multiple boats uh, in all sorts of weather. It's got a landing craft, so you can get onto a rocky beach where there's no uh, where there's no jetty or pier. So you'll be able to take things ashore in the in the case of a disaster or in the case of doing training. So all of these great capabilities that are that are going to be useful in Canada's north will be useful uh, on an op Carib. We've already had success with Harry DeWolf. She's done two op Caribs. Done uh, successful drug busts with a, an embarked U.S. Coast Guard law enforcement team. Uh, the the teams love them because, as as you said, uh, our MCDBs are a bit uh, tough to ride in in rough weather. Whereas uh, Harry DeWolf and her sister ships will be a, a little more comfortable for sure. Uh, and we think that we'll be able to do like the counter drug operation if the situation geopolitically in the Middle East any given year is uh, is suitable as it is today. I think. Um, we could foresee Harry DeWolf doing an op Artemis and doing the counter drug mission that they do in uh, Task Force 150 um, in the in the Arabian Sea. So all those missions will be open to uh, to the AOPS. I think that's awesome. Um, yeah, what an amazing ship! I've had the opportunity to go board uh, when uh, Harry DeWolf was in Victoria, and um, I was I was very impressed. Um, and I'm sure all of the sailors will enjoy sailing aboard it. Um, you mentioned something interesting, uh, and I don't know if I'm picking up something or, but you can share here. Um, and that is, uh, it has a flight deck, um, and I know the Cyclone has certified with the uh, with the Harry DeWolf class. Um, but you mentioned that maybe uh, other helicopters would operate um, with with the ship uh, if it deploys. Do you foresee uh, Cyclones uh, ever deploying with the uh, AOPS ships, or is that something more geared towards the, the frigates? Yeah, I, I, I do see um, the Cyclones going out with, with uh, Harry DeWolf on occasion. Um, we need to work our way through uh, a pretty formal process in terms of, of each kind of helicopter that we would fly off of one of our ships. The current setup in, in the Harry DeWolf class doesn't include a, a, a haul down system. And so it's a free deck landing. We've got to work our way through um, whether that's going to be satisfactory in the long run. Uh, but it, it certainly works for now. We've had a, a Canadian Coast Guard helicopter fly off of one of our ships uh, ready for trials. But as, as I say, we have to work our way through the process for each each kind of helicopter. And that takes some time, and we need to do that uh, with the time available to the ship. In addition to everything else, we're asking the ships to do. So we haven't we haven't fully operationalized the use of of uh, helicopters off of our ships yet. We'll work our way through that in the next year. Uh, but I 
I foresee cyclone helicopters flying off of these ships. A cyclone helicopter comes with an, an awful lot of uh, crew. It's a it's a big helicopter like like the Sea King. Uh, so it has uh, normally when we deploy one helicopter, it has two crews on board in order to fly twelve hours a day, uh, and it has a lot of technicians. Um, that would take up a lot of the bunk space available in Harry DeWolf. And so we'll have to work our way through whether we want a full detachment every time we send a cyclone. Could we go with a reduced detachment uh, in order to save the bunks for other priorities as well uh, and, and balance those priorities against each other? There's, there's a lot of thinking to be done in just how to do this efficiently. But it's, it's, it's good, interesting work that uh, we'll work our way through the Air Force. Yeah, no, that sounds very interesting. Um, so when we think about the geopolitical situation and 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 the world as it is today and uh and potential uh adversaries and threats um what concerns you the most and is there you know i'm asking you with your mcc hat on uh but is there a particular region that concerns you more than others uh, because obviously you know there are near peer threats um you know we we know that russia is being uh, is an aggressor in in Europe. People talk about uh, China being a threat, potential threat. Um, so, is there one particular region that you're more concerned of over others? Or yeah, it's a it's a, it's a great question, and, and we have this debate all the time in, inside the department as we try to understand where to deploy. We want to deploy places where we um, work with allies because we're we're certain that that in the event of a crisis, we'll always have to work with allies. So we want to so. We focus often on where allies are as uh, as as part of the decision making process about where to send folks. As a group of allies, I think that um, the discussion is around what's the most pressing concern today and what's the most pressing concern in the medium to longer term. Um, and that's not the same right now. But the truth is, they have to be have to continue to work in multiple regions in order to be ready for both the concern of today and the concern of the medium to longer term. And so I would think in the, obviously the concern of today, and there's an ongoing war uh, in Ukraine, and we have to be able to, um, you know, to reassure NATO allies uh, and, to, uh, and to reassure our continental ally uh, that we could do our part uh, in the event that, that that crisis were to spill over and be larger than just um, the, the threat to Ukraine. Obviously, and so 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 Russia is the threat of, of today, uh, and we spend an awful lot of time making sure that we are capable of mm-hmm. deploying with NATO allies in the event that it's spilled over into a larger regional conflict. Uh, we spend a lot of time with Americans, uh, making sure that we're capable of defending North America against any kind of threat if it if it was to spill over. So that's a threat of today. Over the medium to longer term, uh, you know, I think everyone in the world um, um, is concerned about. Um, about the potential for a crisis uh, in the Indo-Asia Pacific uh, be- between uh, China and, uh, and, and anyone else. And uh, we want to work with allies to make sure that we, uh, we deter that um, from ever happening. And so that means working with them on a regular basis uh, all the time and not waiting for, for a crisis in order to reassure people that we can act professionally and in concert with allies. And so we need to devote um, a, a more significant portion of our our um our resources to that in the in the medium to longer term and so that's why i say we've we've decided to uh increase the frequency uh, and the number of uh deployments to the indo-asia specifically 
Yeah, and it's such a it's such a large theater that um, obviously uh, once the joint support ships come online, they will they will help that effort for sure. But it, at least for the time being, uh, you have the benefit of having um, asterisk uh, on your coast currently, which is able to do that force generation in terms of uh, being able to replenish at sea. Yeah, and asterisk is a great point. We um, we asterisk is absolutely a resource that we can. Um, deployed for uh, operational and strategic effect, uh, and it's it, it, it's uh, certainly part of our consideration. Uh, we, uh, as a Navy and as a country, you know, we, we leased Asterix uh, with the primary goal of ensuring that um, during the interim period between the paying off of the old um, AORs and the and the receipt of the the first JSS, that we didn't lose the skills um, and, and ability. To conduct a replenishment at sea, and so when we're considering where Asterix is best placed, the first thought is always um, we want to use every single day at sea with Asterix to train sailors on both sides of that replenishment at sea, both in the Asterix uh, working at the the tanker rig and in the receiving ship. We want to train both um, sets of Canadians on how to do RASs so that we so that we maintain that skill set over what is turning out to be a fairly long period between. Um, the, the paying off of preserver and protector and the receipt of the first JSS. Uh, and, and, uh, and so um, g- given that there are seven frigates here on this coast uh, and a more frequent, um, more frequent exercise um, schedule, it's, it's made sense for the ship to be here. Uh, but we know that we could, we could produce an operational and strategic effect by being in the Pacific. And so we're always alive to the idea of, could we, um, when we're sending a, a frigate around to the right space, could we send um, asterisks to the West Coast? And we're always uh, contingency planning about how to do that. And, and I think that in the, in the near future, we'll, we'll probably um, exercise that, that option uh, at, the, at the right time. And, but it, the first choice is, the first consideration is always about maximizing uh, training value. Right. And uh, I think if I uh, have my facts right, I think that Asterisk even was doing those RAS evolutions as the uh, Halifax class frigates just recently returned to, uh, to Halifax. Yeah, that was a, a great day. We got Montreal and Halifax back uh, on the same day because we had surged Halifax forward uh, after the war in Ukraine broke out in order to reinforce NATO. It was great to have Asterix out there, train two ships companies on, on the way back, and plus the team that's in Asterix. Priceless experience for those folks. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, it, where is that capability now? Because I think that um, uh, I don't have the the dates right in front of me, Admiral, but, um, but I think that that contract was supposed to be nearing its culmination. So I, I don't know where that, that stands at the moment. It's in negotiation at this point. And I'm I'm so lucky. I'm I'm the operational person, so I'm I'm just the recipient of of all the hard work of the negotiators. Admiral Dan Charlebois' team up in DGSC uh, is the is the team that uh, negotiates on on behalf of the Navy and, and works through um, PSPC in order to get that contract in place. Um, and they're they're just in the in the middle of finalizing the negotiation for what comes next for Asterix. As, as the recipient, I'm uh, I'm. Hopeful and, and confident that uh, that we'll land on the, on the next phase of, of using Asterix and uh, and we're we're planning like like the, we'll get that done. Uh, beautiful. Well, that's that's great. I, I hope that uh, that does happen. Um, it, so we just mentioned frigates, which is which is interesting. Um, I'm always impressed when I see 
our sailors at sea. And I've had the opportunity to go out a lot, uh, the fortune to go out a lot uh, and always been impressed. The reason why I share that is it makes me think about um, HMCS Fredericton, who had the fire on board. And my question is less so about what happened and why it happened, but more so about uh, how the ship's crew reacted. Because I think it's it just shows how professional a Navy we are and um, how responsive we can be to to situations like that in emergency. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it, it does make me confident because uh, it, it could have been a terrible night. They were uh, just off the coast of Norway, having uh, recently sailed out of a Norwegian port. Um, the weather was rough. It was nighttime. Because of the um, fire, they lost power, uh, and so they, they uh, had no uh, ability to, uh, to maneuver. Uh, the weather was pushing them back towards the Norwegian shore, uh, which is quite rocky along that, that edge. They were in significant danger, and it was a difficult situation to be fighting a fire. Uh, they were bouncing around in, I think, about five-meter seas on, at the time, uh, and so uh, a, a real challenge. And so at the same time that they were uh, bringing the fire teams together to put the fire out, they were also considering whether they uh, needed to rig uh, to be towed away from the shore uh, so that they didn't run aground. And uh, either of those situations are tough without having to do them at night in a rough sea. So very incredible uh, professionalism exercised by those, uh, those sailors. It could have been a really bad night if, if not for their abilities. Well, thank goodness that didn't, uh, you know, they reacted as they did. Admiral, I've got two last questions because I know our time is running short. Um, uh, so my first one is to talk about uh, just submarines. You have one on your coast, uh, HMCS Windsor. The sub threat is is growing, in my opinion. And um, one of the best uh, things to combat a sub, an enemy submarine is a submarine. Um is there anything that you'd like to share about HMCS Windsor? Uh, because I just think it's it's such an interesting capability, and I don't think it's spoken about enough in Canada. Right. Yeah, you're right. The sub threat is growing. It's uh, it's clear that um, that Russia, over many years now, has been reinvesting in their submarine capability. Uh, they're deploying more and more submarines further and further from Russia's coast. Uh, it's open source information. Uh, Russia has long had a strategy which they could execute if they wanted to, uh, to hold um, countries at risk by launching limited strikes uh, that could even be nuclear in, in nature from submarines uh, or from aircraft. And they would do this, these limited strikes in order to, uh, in order to um, deter further action. Uh, and so, you know, that's the reason NORAD exists, for instance. And it's the reason we have a a, uh, a continental defense capability that includes anti-submarine warfare. In terms of anti-submarine warfare, the very best method of finding an enemy submarine, like a Russian submarine, is with a submarine. It's absolutely essential if you want to uh, be able to find them, you have to be able to operate in the water space. And our submarines were built for this exact purpose you know, many years ago. Uh, and so they're still among the most quiet submarines in the world, the most capable submarines in the world. Uh, and we work really hard to build, uh, you know, submariners up and and uh, get them to see and get them practicing it so that if we need them in the event of a crisis, they can do it. Windsor's uh, program is is great. She's um, she's at sea right now, uh, having come out of her last docking work period. She's doing trials and, and increasing their capability and training the next generation of submariners. And we're really proud of, of our ability here in Atlantic Canada, where we 
have had submariners uh, and submarines at sea um, more often, more consistently than than the West Coast, just because of, of Cold War choices. And so the fleet maintenance facility here is really good. They do a great job of uh, of of working through the the various challenges that that operating under the water bring. And so it takes a lot of maintenance to keep a submariner safe. And the team does a great job. You know, the like I said, the, the boats at sea right now. Beautiful. Well, you know, speaking about maintenance, you know, now you have actually two maintenance facilities for your frigates as well on on the East Coast. Uh, I believe one is Irving and the other one is Davy. So I I, I think that's just going to give you added capability in terms of just getting your ships, um, you know, ready to to deploy. Ships are getting older, and they're still great ships. And we and we did a big um, you know midlife uh, refit in order to. Um, reinvigorate the combat capability of, of each of these ships. Uh, and so they are capable ships for, for today's warfare. But that doesn't change the fact that the, the hulls and the engines and all the hull systems are still 30 years old now. Uh, right. And, and 30 years of, uh, of leaving a piece of steel in salt water uh, <laughs> is tough. Yeah. And so the team is up for it. But to keep these ships running until the next class of ship are ready, um, just it's an ever increasing amount of maintenance, just the sheer fact of steel and salt water. Uh, yeah. and, and no, no one's to blame and, uh, and we're not complaining. We just need to work extra hard at it. Uh, and so we appreciate the hard work of, of Irving and Davy and, uh, Vancouver shipyards on the West coast. Uh, all three of those yards, uh, um, play a, a vital role, uh, in the Canadian Navy's ability to keep ships at sea. Uh, and we'll have to get more effective and more efficient uh, as the, as the years go by in order to make up for the fact that ships are just getting older and they just, they just need more, more and more where it's like having an old car. You just keep putting more and more effort into it. Um, but that's the job. We're not complaining. We're, we're, we're happy to do it. Uh, we just got to be more efficient in order to keep the number of sea days up because those sea days are, are what we're going to use to train the ship's companies. So we're going to receive 15 Canadian surface combatants to replace the 12 frigates and the, and the three of them of the, for destroyers that we retired many years ago. Um, but we've only got 12 ships companies to, to turn into 15 eventually, right? So we need to make sure that the ships we have go to sea often enough over the next 10 years that they produce those quality sailors with good experiences. Oh, totally. Uh, and yeah, hopefully the CSC comes uh, sooner than later. But uh, uh, my final question to you is in relation to your uh, Joint Task Force Atlantic um, um, hat. And that is because the corresponding issue of Canadian Defence Review also has an Atlantic focus. And so just from that perspective, you know, there's a lot of good things that our Canadian Armed Forces do um, domestically, as you had mentioned earlier. And, um, you know, you kind of lead the way with your JTF Atlantic hat. So I just wanted to give a shout out there. And, and if there's anything in particular that you'd like to share about that aspect of your job, that'd be great. It's a really uh, enjoyable part of the job because what happens is um, when the country faces a crisis where local authorities or provincial authorities feel that um, that they could really use help in order to respond, for instance, uh, with, with the pandemic, our teams went out from here and were, uh, were involved in Nova Scotia in planning the vaccination of all Nova Scotians. Uh, not just members of the forces. Um, uh, we also put people out uh, in order to uh, help do the the testing and testing sites. You know, every time that there's a, a hurricane that that um, leaks north, 
um, up the eastern seaboard and uh, and hits somewhere in Atlantic Canada, if it's beyond the, the province's ability to help clean up, then we show up for that. If there's flooding in the St. John River, we show up for that. And so um, so these kinds of, of tasks come and they, they come pretty often, uh, but it's really easy to get uh, sailors, soldiers and aviators here in the region motivated to help because uh, they know that they're helping, you know, their, their neighbors, fellow Canadians. Uh, and so it's a pretty uh, highly motivating uh, opportunity to, to make a difference for everybody involved. Well, Rear Admiral Santarpia, I've greatly appreciated your time here, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, sir. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, I wish you and uh, all of the people under your charge the greatest success in, in all that you do. Yeah, thanks so much, Jody. It's, uh, it's nice to speak to your listeners and, uh, and get the word out. Uh, I think lots of Canadians uh, uh, are proud of the forces, but they probably don't have time to to pay attention uh, closely and they, they'd probably be surprised to hear just what people are doing around the world on, on their behalf. Yeah, I agree. I think people uh, don't have really a, a great appreciation for all that you do. So, you know, we at CDR will try to do our best to, to help you with that, uh, with that effort. That, everybody, was Rear Admiral Brian Santarpia, the Commander of Maritime Forces Atlantic and Joint Task Force Atlantic. Please join us again for another episode of CDR Radio. Take care. Have a good day, everyone. Tune in next time for another Canadian Defence Focus podcast from CDR Radio.